Thanks, Joy. We continue our... Oh, sorry. My name is Jeff Leader. For those who don't know me, I'm part of the ministry team here. Uh, actually, just want to add my uh, thanks and appreciation to everyone who um, put a huge effort into uh, pulling the carols off last night. It was a massive effort and a great sign of teamwork and uh, serving servant-heartedness in our people. Uh, today we're going to continue with our series in Romans. We're going to look at uh, Romans 15 today. But uh, so I encourage you to keep your Bibles open to that passage because I'm going to jump around a fair bit around the passage. Uh, the first half of Romans 15, it actually sort of flows on from Romans 14 that Stuart spoke on last week. And then we've got uh, Paul's sort of vision for his ministry in the second half of the chapter. So we'll unpack that as we go. Before I move on, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for what we can learn of uh, people like Paul who've gone before us. Lord, we pray that we will have open hearts and minds to accept uh, your word into our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I had this interesting conversation with Stuart a couple of weeks ago about uh, our grandparents, or maybe more particularly our great grandparents. How well do you know them? Or how well do you know of them? In fact, I think most of us would probably struggle to know the names of our great-grandparents, let alone what they did and what, uh, yeah, what their contribution to the world was in their time. Go back a bit further, uh, unless you're right into ancestry stuff, most of us have no idea uh, who the people were that formed part of our, our heritage. So, with that in mind, I was kind of wondering, what sort of legacy will you leave behind? What sort of legacy will you leave behind? How will you be remembered, or for what will you be remembered when you die? What mark on the world will you make? So what things of significance, or what part will you play in this world? What witness would you leave in this world? It's interesting to contemplate, isn't it? What our legacy will be to those who follow us or what impact we'll make in this world. But when it comes to leaving a legacy, few people will have the same impact on history as Saul of Tarsus. don't know what he really looked like, but there's an old mosaic of him. Saul of Tarsus later became known as the Apostle Paul. He's the one who wrote a fair bit of the New Testament and in particular wrote the letter to the Romans. Paul, Paul's claim to fame is that he co-pastored the first church founded in Gentile or non-Jewish uh, in a non-Jewish city. He went on to plant churches in Cyprus, in Turkey, in Greece and through the, what is now known as the Balkans. Paul directed a mission to Crete. He added to the work in Rome. And he may have personally carried the gospel all the way across to Spain, which is on the far left-hand side of the map, which is not on the map. But that's the sort of extent of Paul's missionary journeys, just in a brief sort of snapshot of, of the work that he did, of the influence he had uh, in the Roman world. And the, the foundations and the teaching he laid down facilitated the spread of Christianity even further. 
Christianity spread into North Africa, into Russia, to Europe, the British Isles, Scandinavia. And then down in later centuries, this Christian faith was taken into the New World, into Africa, Asia and the Pacific. The work that Paul did, his legacy has survived for nearly 2,000 years. So in Romans 15, he shows us more of his heart. What drove him forward? What, um, what motivated him? Because his big vision, it's, in Romans 15, we see the big vision that God gave to Paul. But it also underlines this mission that he had was undergirded by prayer, and he refers to it more as a prayer battle important to appreciate that when we go on a ministry or mission, when we do stuff, how important prayer is. But Paul gave, God gave Paul an incredible task to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. And, uh, in verse 16 in chapter 15, so it says, so the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You see, Paul saw himself as a minister and uh, a minister in particular of Jesus, Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Now, just stepping back a bit, in Rome, the Greek word translated as minister would have meant someone who offered a significant service to the government, usually free of charge, usually sort of to get them in good with the authorities. But in Jerusalem, in Israel, it actually referred to specifically a servant in the temple, and Paul obviously had both notions in mind when he wrote this word. He sees himself granted the high privilege of offering an important service to the kingdom of Jesus. But not only that, he saw it as a priestly duty, a sacred service, because it was for the kingdom of God. Now, at this point, we must not overlook the fact that non-Jews were regarded by Jews as defiled and therefore totally unfit for the presence of God. And Stuart spoke a fair bit about that last week. But acting as a kind of priestly mediator, Paul, with the help of the Holy Spirit, has brought these two very disparate groups of people into a relationship with Jesus, forgiven and cleansed and filled with the ultimate gift of the Holy Spirit, they are now completely welcomed into God's presence. They are acceptable as we are to God. Now, this is Paul's big vision of his part, task and his sense of identity as a minister. It fits with the great commission imperative of Jesus in Matthew 28, 20, to go and make disciples of all nations. And it is a vision that demands from Paul a huge amount of effort and commitment. So as we read Paul's words in Romans 15, we sense something of the energy and joy and enthusiasm and the striving for the kingdom of, of Christ that is part and parcel of Paul's ministry. And we see bubbling up from, from his understanding of his role, a sense of pride in, in his achievements. And he encapsulates this in verse 17 when he says, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. Sounds like he's a bit full of himself. He's sort of boasting in what he's achieved. 
And unlike in our Australian culture, in those days it was quite acceptable for people to speak of their claims to fame or to boast of their achievements, of what they've done. And indeed it was almost expected that a person would seek to be honoured in this way, to sell themselves, to um, make themselves look good in the eyes of other people. Now, although we may not boast in this kind of way, I guess we can relate in some way to the desire for a sense of worth and significance in our own eyes and also in the eyes of other people. Furthermore, the person who believes in Jesus also wishes to be of value in God's eyes. And for Paul, this feeling good about himself before God is now always wrapped up in Jesus. Without Jesus, he sees himself as condemned and separated from God. But in Jesus, he is now accepted by God and he's holy or separated for a ministry, for a purpose. And that purpose is done in partnership with Jesus. Okay, there goes Zach, closely followed by Mum. <laughs> Do you need help there, Annabelle? You'll be right? Okay, <laughs> good. So Paul's work is Christ's work through him. Yet it is still Paul doing it. The excitement, the sense of achievement, the exaltation and pride come through as he outlines his achievements in verse uh, 19. Where he says, By the power of signs and miracles, through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, which is present day, well, what was um, Yugoslavia, which is now Croatia uh, and uh, Bosnia. He says, I fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. So the power of signs and miracles, the power of the Spirit of God. So it's Paul working with God and the way God equips him for this purpose. And so by his teaching, his preaching, and the witness of his own life, his example to others, he is able to perform miracles, the Holy Spirit empowered him, guided him, directed his path. And with all this, Paul moved across a world which really did not know the one true God. And as he did so, he left the Christian faith in his wake. Paul's words sound as if he had Jesus' missionary commission at the forefront of his mind. When you, Jesus said in, Matthew, in Acts 1, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You know, so that, that directive starts small and it just grows and grows and grows to encapsulate the entirety of the earth. But coming back, Paul's writing his letter from Ephesus. He's hoping to uh, journey to, to uh, Jerusalem with an offertory that the people in Macedonia had collected for the, uh, the poor who are suffering from a famine in, um, in Israel. Um, but he had hoped that he would eventually move, journey on to Rome. But practically, he needed a base 
and he needed strong support. And he's looking to the Roman believers to provide this support and base. And that's part of the reason for his writing to the letter, the, the letter to the Romans. Though he's never been there before, he already, it looks like he already knows quite a number of Christian believers living there. And he actually holds a very high opinion of the Roman believers. And he does not for a moment wish them to think that he's writing such weighty things in this letter because these people are ignorant. It's quite the opposite. It's because of their understanding of the faith and their serious zeal for ministry that he's able to send them such a comprehensive exposition of the way of salvation through Christ. It says in verse 15, I've written you quite boldly. So he knows what he's doing. I've written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me. Now you'd have to wonder which place is in the letter. Now this is a big letter. Where Paul held his breath and he wrote, as he wrote. You see, I guess the reality is no church is without its problems. Was it the doctrine of faith alone which the Romans especially needed help? with well perhaps it was the relevance of the law what was the relationship of the law to the christians christian believers or the need to reckon yourself dead to sin or perhaps it was at the topic of predestination it might have been the need for consist for a consistent life in the world or perhaps the instruction of the relationship between a, a citizen and the state or the need to accept one another. All these things are covered in this letter to the Romans. But probably everything that Paul mentioned was an issue for some individual or group in Rome without detracting from the fact that overall they were knowledgeable and able to teach and minister to one another's spiritual needs. However, the overall thrust of the letter makes one think that there were two very critical issues. And they were the way in which a person finds acceptance with God by faith apart from the law and the place of the Jew and Gentile united together in the kingdom of God. And there is every sign that when Paul came to this great, last great practical exhortation on mutual acceptance, which starts in the beginning of Romans chapter 14, continues halfway through Romans 15, and as Paul was addressing this topic, last of all, it's almost as though this is the most important thing in this church. And it may have even been a, a really hot potato, a very sensitive issue that he needed to address. But it was important to address. But it's, in, a, in a sense, it's, it's like the practical result of everything else that Paul had dealt with in the letter. And the reaction of the Roman believers would be to a large, to a large extent determine what sort of future cooperation in mission and ministry he might receive from them. This is so important to establish this unified base. So one of the great joys in life, I'd have to say, but one of the greatest challenges in life is living in relationship with other people whether it's in our homes or our workplaces or our clubs or organisations that we're connected with or even in our churches. 
is that where there are unresolved disagreements, often arising from self-interest, relationships suffer. And the organisations, workplaces and churches struggle to be effective if relationships are dysfunctional. And quite frankly, we only need to look at our political parties to see the truth of this. Where there is disunity and dysfunction within an organisation, with people pulling in different directions, the organisation will lose its ability to focus on its primary purpose and goal. Now, I guess Paul could sense that there were tensions arising between believers in Rome. And he needed to write to encourage them to accept one another's differences. We're all different, we're all unique. But this was important to Paul as it meant the difference between success and failure of his great vision to unite the Jews and the Gentiles in fellowship under the lordship of Jesus and then to continue to advance God's kingdom. You see, in Rome and elsewhere, two seemingly trivial questions were causing friction and division. Eating meat and the observance of religious holidays. You see, the basic problem was the coming together of two very different cultures, as Stuart explained to us last week. For example, Jews observed the Sabbath and kept various other holy days, whereas Gentiles were unaccustomed to them. It was also important to the Jews that meat was prepared in the correct way and that it had not been offered to idols before being sold in the marketplace. So when these two groups came together, the Jewish Christians saw the second group eating polluted food and ignoring the sacred festivals. And the non-Jewish believers saw the Jewish believers as bound by superstitious taboos and not understanding the freedom the gospel provided. Paul's answer to this problem is summed up in the words at the beginning uh, in chapter 15, verse 7, where he says, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. Accept one another. This is a bit of a refrain through chapter 14 and and chapter 15 because in chapter 14 it begins, accept the one whose faith is weak. And then later on in verse 3 it says, God has accepted them. Very powerful argument. Now with all our flaws and uh, imperfections, God accepts us as we are. God accepts us. And so we're encouraged to accept one another with all our differences and our our quirky personalities. We're to accept and love each other as God accepts and loves us. Now the Greek word for accept is is like a, a friendship term. And it means take someone into your circle of friends and acquaintances. And Jesus, when we look at Jesus, he's brought us into his inner circle. We're now members of Jesus' family. And in his church, he wants us to accept fellow believers. Even if we have some measure of difficulty with some of, their, the, ways, some of the ways they do things or some of, the, some of their practices. Of course, there are limits to such acceptance. And here in Romans 14 and 15, Paul is dealing with members of the Christian community, we have to remember. 
So as we come to chapter 15, Paul, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Paul here is concerned about things which are not issues of salvation. Nor are they to do with well-defined moral conduct. That's a given. There's no argument about that. But rather, where there is some latitude or uncertainty in the way different people, different Christian believers will act. There's all sorts of different forms of the way we worship, for example. Some prefer worship styles which are more formal. Others are more relaxed. That's just a sort of a small example. But the fact is there is no way the unity and fellowship of a church community can be built without a self-sacrificing spirit amongst the people. I have to say, we saw that yesterday. And in the lead up to to yesterday, it was amazing to see just how people gave of themselves when things didn't quite work out the way we'd hoped. People just got in there, served each other, loved each other, encouraged each other in the face of incredible challenges and difficulties with the weather yesterday. That's what it's all about. But if everyone is out for themselves, the fellowship will disintegrate around us or maybe even die. But as people love and serve one another, it flourishes and everyone will benefit. Again, Paul cites Jesus as the ultimate example of this. The hostility of sinners towards God made fellowship between him and human beings impossible. But Jesus comes and he allowed that opposition to fall upon himself without retaliating and with constant goodwill. He gave himself up to die on a cross to pay for our sins and to reconcile us to God. And so as we are reconciled, we receive God's peace and joy in our hearts. However, Paul is not fooled into thinking that this kind of mutual acceptance will come easily. Ultimately, he looks to God who inspires patience and gives encouragement to help his people find agreement. And in doing so, as people in the Christian community do that, they will give a united witness to the glory of God in their community. In chapter 15 in Romans, uh, verses 7 to 13, Paul re-emphasizes the importance of God's acceptance of both Jews and Gentiles and their acceptance of one another. And for Paul, mutual acceptance lay at the heart of God's plan for the world. And far from being an incidental piece of teaching on keeping the peace, this whole section on mutual acceptance flows from the mission of Jesus to fulfill the promises of God to the Jewish people in the Old Testament, to reconcile them with God. But you know, God's purpose right from the beginning in Genesis was never to exclusive to Israel. From the very beginning, the scriptures envisaged the day when all the nations of the world would find acceptance. And it was for this too that Jesus became a servant, died on the cross. And It was from this too that Paul was appointed an apostle to the nations. And so it's fitting that the letter should climax with this plea to Christian believers on both sides of the fence 
to accept one another and rejoice in each other's membership of God's people, just as Paul did. The goal is not just that people of all nations be united under, united under the banner of Christ, that they should also be able to enjoy each other's fellowship in the spirit of peace and joy. Accordingly, Paul closes this section with a prayer that God, by his Holy Spirit, should fill his people to overflowing with joy and peace and hope. And he says in verse 13, May the God of hope fill you all with joy and peace as you trust in him. So, why? So that you may overflow with the hope of the power of the Holy Spirit. There's power in these words. There's power in our faith. There's power that comes from the Holy Spirit working within us. And then we find as we move on through the chapter, uh, we, we find that Paul sort of outlines his missionary strategy, so to speak. Verses 20 to 24. You see, God gives his ministers, we use this word, enormous scope and freedom to work out the strategy and details of how they'll fulfill their commission. Paul had his own way about how things were meant to go. He does, but he does not clutch to himself the whole missionary task. He wants to break new ground. He wants to plant the seed. He wants to leave it to others to water and tend that seed as it grows and sprouts. But if someone gets there before him, well and good. He'll leave that place and go somewhere else. Paul's not one who seeks places to preach because of his, some need of his own. The need is for the gospel of Jesus to be heard. And so like a military general, he fights the campaign and pushes on to the next enemy stronghold. And in places like Syria and Antioch, Christianity is well established. In others like Ephesus, where he writes this letter, there are teams of ministers that he trains who carry out the work of taking the gospel into the regions beyond. But there are some places that Paul can no longer visit because of persecution and because he's now marked man. But whatever the reason, he can make the incredible claim that as far as Syria, Cyprus, Cilicia, Galatia, Asia Minor, Greece, Crete, Yugoslavia, Albania are all concerned. His job is done. And new frontiers are beckoning. He wants to break new ground. But this, of course, could be only be the case if he saw his task as establishing a group of committed, faithful people in the major cities. And he wanted to rely on them to spread the word into the smaller towns and villages and the regions surrounding them. Ephesus may not have been typical in every respect, but it is a model of a well-thought-out missionary strategy. We see for two years that Paul held daily discussion classes in a rented hall, in which time Luke tells us the whole province of Asia heard the word of God. The exception to Paul's strategy of not building on another person's foundations was his projected visit to Rome. And he realised that this is an exception, that this is probably why he has always been hindered from, in his desire to, to visit Rome. Nevertheless, it is a godly desire and it's an important exception. For it is unthinkable that the one who was commissioned 
by Jesus to carry his name to the Gentiles and their kings should dodge the capital city of the empire, even given that others uh, got there before him. However, as we see in Acts, we see that Paul's plans for getting to Rome differed from the way God was arranging for him to visit. Because you may remember that Paul was wanting to travel to Jerusalem to take the offertory to, um, to, to the believers in Jerusalem. Then he was going to arrange to travel on to Rome. But God had other ideas. When he was in Jerusalem, he was arrested. He was detained for two years before he was taken as a prisoner to Rome. But God arranged for Paul to, have, to reach an audience in Rome beyond anything he could have dreamed he would reach. Because in the process of his trial as a political prisoner, he was to have the opportunity to present the good news of new life in Jesus to some of the most influential and powerful people in the Roman Empire. Paul made an impression. He left an incredible legacy. And we have the privilege of being read about what he did, what he achieved in Jesus' name. But you know, one of the great joys in my life has been to be able to make a difference in the lives of some of the people God has brought across my path in the years. I don't know how long or for what I will be remembered when I leave this world. But I hope that my legacy will be to have made a difference, however small or insignificant, in the lives of people that I've met, that I've shared with, that I've parented. So what I'd like you to take from this is that I'd like to encourage you to invest in the relationships that God has brought to you. God has brought us all to this church and he has placed us in his family in this place. God wants us to learn to love one another, to accept one another, despite the differences we, in the way we do things. Some of our customs, our practices Yes, we're all unique, different. But we need to be patient with each other. And we need to encourage each other to grow in our relationship with the Lord. We need to grasp the opportunities to make his name known in the world around us. No matter who you are, you can make a difference. And that's my prayer for you today that you do make a difference, that you do leave a legacy in your life or in somebody else's life. May your life touch somebody else's in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for accepting us and loving us, for drawing us into your family. Lord, help us to show your love, your acceptance to those we in our circle of relationships. May we look to the needs of others. May we serve each other with a loving heart. Help us to be patient with each other, Lord. 
and look to that day when we will share together in your kingdom in heaven forever. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.